Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 276 for June 13th, 2022. I've got a new show for you this week and lots of interesting uh, stuff to cover. There wasn't really a lot of super big security or privacy stuff in the news. Uh, there was a little bit, and we'll, we'll cover that. Um, but I ran across some interesting articles uh, with some topics that I think are good to discuss. So uh, we will get into that in just a minute. First of all, I want to draw your attention to uh, a great video interview I did with Henry from TechLore. Uh, if you'll remember, we had Henry on the show, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, something like that. It was a lot of fun talking to Henry. And he said, well, hey, why don't, why don't we turn the favor? Why don't you come on, on our show and we'll do an interview with you? And theirs, of course, is a video interview. And it's quite obvious <laughs> if, if, you watch, if you watch the video <laughs> that I'm a podcaster, not a video guy, unlike Henry, who does video for a living. Uh, you know, I was doing like a conference call basically. And so I was looking at Henry when I really honestly should have been looking at the camera. But anyway, it was still, it was a lot of fun and it's a little bit about me. It's a little bit about how I view privacy uh, and some of my top tips. And it was, it was just a lot of fun. So anyway, there's a link in the show notes or if you go to TechLore, I'm sure it's one of the top videos there in terms of recent videos. Uh, you can check that out. Now, because of that video, uh, originally my Dragon Challenge coin promotion was going to end tomorrow. But because that video didn't drop until Friday, and I wanted to make sure that the TechLore listeners or viewers, I guess, had an opportunity to participate, I am going to extend the Dragon Challenge Coin promotion until this Friday. Technically, I guess, 11 p.m. Eastern Time on June 17th. So you now have extra time to get yourself one of these super rare, very cool, and security-enhancing Dragon Challenge Coins. Now, I just booked my flights and hotel for DEFCON 30, the big 3-0. It's going to be off the hook. I cannot wait. Uh, DEFCON 29 was my first one last year, and I'm, I'm hooked. I'm planning to go every year as long as I can. And uh, this one is going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, I'll get another chance to interview Jeff Moss, the founder of DEFCON. Uh, and I'm thinking of all sorts of fun ways I could kind of bring that experience back to you guys. Now, one natural topic for this week's new show would be to cover a lot of the announcements that Apple made at the Worldwide Developer Conference, their annual conference for Apple software developers. And they announced some really cool privacy and security features for both iOS and macOS that should debut this fall when those big updates are released. But because they're not out yet and they are subject to change, but because they're not out yet and they are subject to change, and also because I think I'm actually going to see if I can't find somebody from Apple to interview. I've never interviewed anybody from Apple before. Um, so I thought, well, let's see if I can find somebody at Apple to come on the show and and talk about these things that way. So anyway, I'm hoping to get that to happen. But if, not, if nothing else, when these features actually debut, I'm sure I will go through them uh, on the show here to explain what they are and how to use them. All right, so we have a new show for you today. Lots of things to cover. I'm going to talk about a new report from a cybersecurity panel that talks about U.S. water facilities and why they are a prime target for cyber attacks. I'm going to talk about a new-ish way to infect Windows computers from PDF files that will install the Snake Keylogger malware. Then I've got an article from MIT about some Chinese hackers who have been exploiting old, old software vulnerabilities to break into our telecom systems and why that is a really big concern. I've got an article from Ars Technica about some Australian digital driver's license technology that supposedly had all these super cool anti-forgery technologies built in that would turn out to be actually trivial to hack. I have a little bit of good news. The FBI has recovered at least some of the ransom from the Colonial Pipeline attack. I've got a bit of a longer article talking about ballot barcodes, 
Uh, election security is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. We had Hari Hursty on the show last fall, uh, which was a great interview when we talked about how vulnerable our voting systems are. And so I saw this article, I thought it was really good, uh, and I wanted to read it and talk a little bit about some of the technologies in there and explain some of the some of the threats to something that might seem pretty secure. We've talked a lot about Clearview AI uh, on the show before, and we're going to be talking about it more soon when uh, hopefully I have my interview with Nate Wessler from the ACLU. But there's a new game in town, another company called Pim Eyes, that does a similar thing in a different way, but doesn't restrict access basically allowing anybody who wants to pay at least 30 bucks a month to take a picture of anybody they can find and go look it up online to figure out whose face that is. And then finally, Tim Hortons was caught gathering way too much user data and uh, with their smartphone app. And uh, it's a cautionary tale and it's not new, but it's worth reviewing again why, why you might not just want to install an app just because a company says you should. And then we'll get to my tip of the week where we throw a little pepper on your passwords. So let's get to the news. All right, so first of all, this is from an article from ThreatPost, and it's summarizing the, a statement based on a panel discussion with some cybersecurity experts. So let me just read the article. Industrial controls governing water-related U.S. critical infrastructure are woefully underestimated as cyber attack targets. The potential for attacks, say policymakers, is too great to ignore with consequences potentially devastating to populations. On Wednesday, and I think this was last Wednesday, the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, CCTI, and the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, CSC, released policy statements based on a recent panel discussion titled Strengthening the Cybersecurity of American Water Utilities. Water may be the greatest vulnerability in our national infrastructure, said Samantha Ravitch, chair of CCTI. Much of the problem lies in just how decentralized water systems are, she explained. Panelists asserted that protecting critical water infrastructure systems from cyber attack were a greater imperative versus healthcare and the power grid, which includes nuclear facilities. Ravitch pointed out the U.S. has around 52,000 drinking water and 16,000 wastewater systems. And this is a quote from her. She says, quote, each of these systems operates in a unique threat environment, often with limited budgets and even more limited cybersecurity personnel to respond to these threats, unquote. Water treatment plants are a ripe target because the majority of them serve smaller communities of fewer than 50,000 residents. That often forces budget-challenged federal, state, and municipalities to make hard choices when it comes to what gets cybersecurity funding at the local level. In an opening remark, Congressman Jim Langevin, a Democrat from Rhode Island, brought the issue home. Langevin cited a cyber attack on critical water infrastructure that occurred in 2021 when a water treatment plant in Oldsmar, Florida was attacked. And we talked about that on this show when that happened. In that incident, a hacker broke into the IT system of Oldsmar's, oh, say that quickly, Oldsmar's water treatment plant and remotely accessed the computer system. And this is a quote from the report. It said, quote, the plant operator observed the mouse moving around on the screen to access various systems that control the water being treated, unquote. The hacker tried poisoning the supply by adjusting sodium hydroxide levels from 100 parts per million to 11,100. Because the plant operator observed what was going on, the attack was thwarted in time. 
Langevin highlighted how utilities providers often lack the resources to meet regulatory guidelines instituted by organizations like the EPA. And the EPA, for its part, quote, faces challenges in meeting its responsibilities when it comes to the day-to-day relationship between the federal government and their water sector, unquote. And actually, uh, continuing that quote, knowing what we know about the cyber threats facing the water sector, this status quo simply cannot continue. The risks are too great. We need to raise the bar among water utilities across the country, building a capacity and strengthening adherence to industry-wide standards. And we need to ensure that the EPA is appropriately resourced and empowered to fulfill its critical mission as a sector risk management agency for water, unquote. All right, it goes on, but... I thought it was interesting that, that this panel believed that the water systems were actually more critical than healthcare and the energy sector. I, I'm not sure I agree, but I'm also not an expert. So anyway, I think basically what they're saying is that it's, it's a problem because there are so many of them and they're so small and tend to be underfunded that they're just easy targets, low hanging fruit. And obviously if <laughs> could affect a lot of people extremely negatively. I mean, that thing in Florida was prevented by pure luck. I mean, what are the odds that somebody would be sitting there and happen to be able to watch somebody remote controlling a computer and watch, to see the mouse pointer move and watch the computer doing things on its own? I mean, it's really only because the computer operator used like a, a VNC type thing, which allowed him to do remote desktop control as opposed to, you know, kind of logging in remotely where there would be no obvious screen showing what was going on. That, that was just pure luck that, that was found. That could have been horrific. So yes, absolutely. We need to be investing in these things. We're going to get bit. All right, moving on. This is an article about a clever way to install malware. It, there, there are so many ways to do it, and they, they often involve a chain of events. And this, this one is no different. This one starts with a PDF file that eventually brings down a Microsoft Word file, which then brings down some other text file and tries to execute it. It's kind of complicated. But I think it's interesting to, to see how they basically first tricked the user into doing it. Uh, So anyway, let me read this article from Bleeping Computer. Thread model analysts have discovered a recent malware distribution campaign using PDF attachments to smuggle malicious Word documents that infect users with malware. The choice of PDFs is unusual, as most malicious emails today arrive with DOCX or XLS attachments, that's Word or Excel, laced with malware-loading macro code. However, as people become more educated about opening malicious Microsoft Office attachments, threat actors switch to other methods to deploy malicious macros and evade detection. In a new report by HP Wolf Security, Researchers illustrate how PDFs are being used as a transport for documents with malicious macros that download and install information-stealing malware on victims' machines. In a campaign seen by HP Wolf Security, the PDF arriving via email is named Remittance Invoice, and our guess is that the email body contains vague promises of payment to the recipient. When the PDF is opened, Adobe Reader prompts the user to open a docx file contained inside, which is already unusual and might confuse the victim. Because the threat actors enabled the embedded document, quote, has been verified, unquote, the open file prompt below states, quote, the file has been verified, unquote. This message could trick recipients into believing that Adobe verified the file as legitimate and that the file is safe to open. All right, so let me stop right there because this is kind of the crux of the whole issue. And there's a picture that you can't see that I'm going to describe to you. So basically, when you when you click on this attachment, it's a PDF file, and Adobe Reader, you know, trying to be safe, says, hey, do you really want to open this file? But the way it does that is it 
includes the name of the file in its warning message. And because it does that, and this is a classic case of not being careful with input from an untrusted source, they named the file, and this is a long name, and this is the actual name of the file. The name of the file is has been verified, period. However, PDF, comma, JPEG, comma, XLS, comma, dot, docx. That's the name of the file. So think about that. So it actually is a docx file. That's what that dot docx is at the end. That is part of the file name. But when you just take the file name and put it into the warning, it makes the text of the warning message sound different. So the, the text of the open the text of the open file message is supposed to say the file blah blah and blah blah is in quotes and then it continues may contain programs macros or viruses but if you take the file name that I just told you and plug that in for where I said blah blah here's the way that same warning message reads the file has been verified however PDF JPEG XLS and DOCX may contain programs macros or viruses now if you look carefully there are single quotes around the file name, so that does look weird. But if you just read the text and didn't pay too much attention to that, it really kind of sounds like this file has been verified. So the default option, by the way, is to open this file and you click OK, which is the default button. So if you just hit return, it's going to open this file and you're infected. All right, let me, let me finish the article. While malware analysts can inspect embedded files in PDFs using parsers and scripts, Regular users who receive these tricky emails wouldn't go that far or even know where to start. As such, many may open the docx in Microsoft Word, and if macros are enabled, which by the way, they should never should be, you almost never really need macros, it will download an RTF or rich text format file from a remote resource and open it. The RTF file is named f underscore document underscore shp dot doc, and contains malformed Olay object, and that's a Microsoft thing, likely to evade analysis. After some targeted reconstruction, HP's analysts found that it attempts to abuse an old Microsoft Equation Editor vulnerability to run arbitrary code. All right, it goes on and lists some vulnerability stuff, but the key part is what I just read to you, and that's how these guys get tricky, and that's why, as a software developer, you just cannot trust information that is given to you by a third party. And in this case, that information is the file name. And that is a really tricky file name. That was, it was very clever on the bad guy's part. Now there was a classic, I think maybe it was XKCD cartoon. I'll look this up and put it in the show notes around this exact issue, which is not validating your inputs, not checking your inputs from untrusted third parties. In other words, users. And it was about this, about this case where a kid hacked into his high school database by putting in his name as little Bobby drop tables. And so if you're, if you're not a tech geek, you won't get that, but I'll, I'll nevertheless, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes because it, it is classic and it's right along the lines of this. All right, moving on. This is from the MIT technology review. It says hackers employed by the Chinese government have broken into numerous major telecommunications firms around the world in a cyber espionage campaign that has lasted at least two years, according to a new advisory from American security agencies. The hackers allegedly breached their targets by exploiting old and well-known critical vulnerabilities in popular networking hardware. 
Once they had found a foothold inside their targets, the hackers used the compromised devices to gain full access to the network traffic of numerous private companies and government agencies, U.S. officials said. The advisory did not include the names of those affected by the campaign, nor did it detail the impact it has had. But U.S. officials did point out that the specific networking devices, such as routers and switches, that hackers in China are thought to have targeted repeatedly, exploiting severe and well-known vulnerabilities that effectively gave the attackers free reign over their targets. The new advisory is the latest example of a radical shift among U.S. intelligence agencies away from a culture of silence and secrecy. The organizations now routinely speak publicly to issue cybersecurity guidance. The new document is designed to help victims detect and eject hackers who have been infiltrating their networks for years. And it's something bigger, too, a warning about the need for better basic cybersecurity for some of the most important networks in the world. Telecommunications firms are extremely high-value targets for intelligence agencies. These companies build and run on most of the infrastructure of the Internet, as well as many private networks around the world. Successfully hacking them can mean opening doors to an even bigger world of prized spying opportunities. In the newly reported cyber campaign, the Chinese hackers allegedly exploited networking devices from major vendors like Cisco, Citrix, and Netgear. All of the vulnerabilities were publicly known, including a five-year-old critical flaw in Netgear routers that allows attackers to bypass authentication checks and execute any code they choose, an opening that allows for a full takeover of the device and an unfettered window into the victim's network. The campaign's success is a dramatic illustration of the danger software flaws pose even years after they've been discovered and made public. Zero-day attacks, hacks exploiting previously unknown weaknesses, pack a punch and demand attention. But known flaws remain potent because networks and devices can be difficult to update and secure with limited resources, personnel, and money. Rob Joyce, a senior National Security Agency official, explained that the advisory was meant to give step-by-step instructions on finding and expelling the hackers. This is a quote from Rob. He says, quote, To kick the Chinese hackers out, we must understand the tradecraft and detect them beyond just initial access, unquote. Joyce echoed the advisory, which directed telecom firms to enact basic cybersecurity practices like keeping key systems up to date, enabling multi-factor authentication, and reducing the exposure of internal networks to the internet. So yeah, that's pretty freaking scary. And it just goes to show how hard it is to get cybersecurity right. And as the saying goes, you know, the bad guys only have to be successful once. The good guys have to be successful every single time. It is hard to do, and it's hard to do right. It takes time, it takes money, it takes effort, it takes training, it takes support. These are all things that we need to invest in both as citizens, uh, certainly as corporations, and also from our government. This is the kind of thing that our government is meant to do. And I'm really glad to see, actually, that our government here in the U.S. is stepping up and you know, being more open about these things and kind of taking the stance that defense right now is more important than offense, or at least as important. Okay, now let's move on to the story from Ars Technica about these Australian digital driver's licenses. In late 2019, the government of New South Wales in Australia rolled out digital driver's licenses. The new licenses allowed people to use their iPhone or Android device to show proof of identity and age during roadside police checks or at bars, stores, hotels, and other venues. Service NSW, and NSW there is New South Wales, Service NSW, as the government body is usually referred to, promised it would, quote, provide additional levels of security and protection against identity fraud compared to the plastic driver's license, unquote, citizens had used for decades. 
Now, 30 months later, security researchers have shown that it's trivial for just about anyone to forge fake identities using the digital driver's licenses, or DDLs. The technique allows people under drinking age to change their date of birth and for fraudsters to forge fake identities. The process takes well under an hour, doesn't require any special hardware or expensive software, and will generate fake IDs that pass inspection using the electronic verification system used by police and participating venues. All of this despite assurances that security was a key priority for the newly created DDL system. DDLs require an iOS or Android app that displays each person's credentials. The same app allows police and venues to verify that the credentials are authentic. Features designed to confirm that the ID is authentic and current include, one, animated NSW government logo, two, display of the latest refreshed date and time, three, a QR code expires and reloads, four, a hologram that moves when the phone is tilted, five, a watermark that matches the license photo, and six, address details that don't require scrolling. The technique for overcoming these safeguards is surprisingly simple. The key is the ability to brute force the pin that encrypts the data. Since it's only four digits long, there are only 10,000 possible combinations. Using publicly available scripts and a commodity computer, someone can learn the correct combination in a matter of a few minutes. So let me just stop there for a second. Now, I've shortened this article some, so I, I may have skipped over where they talked about that in a little bit more in depth. But this whole system with all these fancy countermeasures has a data file underneath it, a simple text data file that is locked by a four-digit pin. That is some code that runs from 0000 through 9999. And if you do the math, there's 10,000 possible combinations. And because there's nothing that prevented this software from trying as many combinations as possible to decrypt this thing, this thing is trivially encrypted, they could get access to it and modify it. So all that other stuff that I just read about, all those fancy schmancy techniques they were using to try to prevent somebody from you know, creating like a screenshot or a photoshopped version of this and showing it to somebody all goes out the window because all they have to actually do is, is modify the actual data. All right, let me keep reading. Once a fraudster gets access to someone's encrypted DDL license data, either with permission or by stealing a copy stored in an iPhone backup or through remote compromise, the brute force gives them the ability to read and modify any of the data stored on the file. From there, it's a matter of using simple brute force software and standard smartphone and computer functions to extract the file, storing the credential, decrypting it, changing the text, re-encrypting it, and copying it back to the device. A variety of design flaws make this simple hack possible. First is a lack of adequate encryption. A key based on a four-digit PIN is woefully inadequate. The next major flaw is that, astonishingly, DDL data is never validated against the back-end database to make sure that what's stored on the phone matches records maintained by the government department. With no means to natively validate the data, there's no way to tell when the information has been tampered with. As a result, attackers are able to display the falsified data on the service NSW application without any means to prevent or detect the fraud. The third shortcoming is that using the pull to refresh function, a cornerstone of the DDL verification scheme intended to ensure the most current information is showing, fails to refresh any of the data stored in the electronic credential. Instead, it updates only the QR code. A better response would be for the pull to refresh function to download the latest copy of the DDL from the service NSW database. 
Fourth, the QR code transmits only the DDL holder's name and status as either over or under the age of 18. The QR code is supposed to allow the person checking the ID to scan it with their with their own service NSW app to validate that the data presented is authentic. To bypass the check, a fraudster only needs to obtain the driver's license data from a stolen or otherwise obtained DDL and replace it locally on their phone. And this is a quote from Noah Farmer, uh, who's one of the researchers who identified the flaw. Farmer says, quote, when an unsuspecting victim scans the fraudster's QR code, everything will check out and the victim won't know that the fraudster has combined their own identification photo with someone's stolen driver's license details, unquote. Had the system returned the legitimate image data, the scanning party would easily see that the fraudster had forged the DDL, since the face returned by a service NSW wouldn't match the face displayed on the app. With a reported 4 million NSW residents using the DDLs, the GAF could have serious consequences for anyone who relies on DDLs to verify identities, age, addresses, or other personal information. It's not clear how or even if service NSW plans to respond. So this is just, uh, it's laughable, it's sad, but I think that what this is really showing is that security is, is hard, but what it really needs more than anything, and I bet was not done in this case, was independent third-party verification. You can't grade your own homework, certainly not when it comes to stuff like this. If any self-respecting security researcher, like the ones that found this problem, had reviewed this before it went public, they would have found this and it would have been fixed before it was given out to 4 million people. And it also just goes to show that it really comes down to the implementation. There's all these really fancy things going on. You know, all those things that I listed, those six different supposedly anti-counterfeiting techniques that made this so secure were just window dressing. When under the covers, all you had to do was just change the data. All that other stuff doesn't matter. Classic, classic security fail. All right, now a little bit of good news. This is from CPO Magazine. A little over half of the $4.4 million Colonial Pipeline ransomware payment has been recovered by the FBI. And in the process, some questions about the source of the attack may have been answered. The FBI is keeping its sources and tactics close to the vest, but inferences about how the money moved and was ultimately recovered lend credence to it being an incompetent ransomware-as-a-service client rather than a secret operation backed by the Russian government. At a press conference on Monday, FBI, and I think this was last Monday, FBI officials revealed that they recovered about $2.3 million or 75 Bitcoin of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware payment. They said that this was done via direct access to the Bitcoin wallet, but would not get into specifics so as to protect tradecraft. The officials only said that it was, quote, seized via a court order, unquote, from someplace within American infrastructure. Though the FBI will likely not release further details, there is some reasonable speculation as to how this played out. Since the perpetrators used Bitcoin, which is far from being completely anonymous, which we found out last week with our interview with uh, Seth for Privacy, it would be possible to follow the movement of the money to some degree via the wallet address. The fact that the court order that led to the seizure of the ransomware payment came from the Northern District of California points to the criminals attempting to cash out to fiat currency via Coinbase which currently lists no official headquarters, but used its San Francisco office for that purpose until recently. If that theory holds up, it further reinforces the initial explanation that the dark side ransomware group offered to the public that it was one of their more unsophisticated ransomware as a service clients that perpetrated the attack and got themselves in over their head with a target that was too big and public. 
there has been rampant speculation that the Russian government somehow had a direct hand in this attack, along with budding conspiracy theories regarding the FBI's announcement that they had access to the digital wallet. But if the incompetent criminals try to cash out via Coinbase theory is true, there is no need for any sort of government conspiracy. The FBI would merely have to serve a warrant to Coinbase to recover the funds once identifying them as being in a wallet it hosts. The ransomware payment recovery is one of the first actions taken by the Justice Department's new Ransomware and Extortion Task Force, which was first reported on in April. The task force was formed as a response to a record year in terms of ransomware incidents and payments as attacks not only became more severe, but incorporated new elements such as threatening blackmail and distributed denial of service attacks. The Justice Department recently moved ransomware attacks to the same response priority as terrorist attacks, calling the consequences, quote, destructive and devastating, unquote. The FBI has also used the Colonial Pipeline outcome to highlight the importance of contacting officials as soon as possible after being hit by an attack, even if the organization plans to make the ransomware payment. Substantial recovery of funds is possible if the attackers route the money through the right places. And that's why I think disclosure laws really need to be put in place. The government has a lot of resources here, and they can't help you if they don't know to help. And the sooner they find out about it, the better off we'll all be, including the customers who might be affected by stuff like this. And this also, of course, dovetails nicely with the uh, interview we did last week about cryptocurrency with Seth for privacy. So I thought it was a timely article. All right, this next article is from the Center for Democracy and Technology, a great organization. um, And it's about election security. And we have an election coming up here in the United States soon. We actually are actually have some now with primaries going on. And with all the stuff surrounding what happened in 2020 and all the allegations there, which by the way, this article talked about, and I just took out because I'm not interested in the political aspects of this, uh, only the security aspects. This talks about how it's possible to hack an election, even when you use paper ballots. Now, of course, there are remedies for that. And this article will talk about those as well. But I think it's important to understand this kind of threat factor, this sort of technique and understand how hard it is to get security right and what you got to be careful of. It's, it's really clever. So anyway, it, this is kind of a long article. Actually, it's much, much longer than what I'm reading here. I've, I've just taken out the, the highlights. Um, if you want to read more, then definitely uh, look in the show notes. An upcoming CDT report will take a close look at some of the arguments made about the uh, security of ballot marking devices or BMDs. But in this post, we want to examine one particular characteristic of most BMDs the barcodes on the paper ballots that they produce. After a voter has finished making their selections on the voting machine's touchscreen, the BMD will print out their selections in human-readable text for them to review. Most BMDs, such as the Dominion ImageCast X used in Georgia, will additionally encode those selections in a one- or two-dimensional barcode or QR code. The benefit of encoding selections in a barcode is that ballot scanners can read them quickly and accurately. But some have said that encoding voter selection in a barcode is problematic. A ballot with the ImageCast X, for example, contains two records, the human-readable record and the machine-readable record. This lends itself to an attack called an inconsistent barcode attack, in which a hacked BMD alters the vote encoded in the barcode, and therefore the vote recorded by scanners, but leaves the human-readable portion intact. A voter could not detect this attack because the ballots would appear correct to them. An advisory published today by the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, recommends mitigating specific vulnerabilities that could lead to this kind of attack. 
It then notes that the ImageCast X can be configured to print ballots that do not have barcodes, presumably instead printing a filled-in bubble ballot. The Clear Ballot Clear Access BMD, for example, produces this kind of ballot. Are these bubble ballots immune to the inconsistent barcode attack? Not really. When tabulating these bubble ballots, scanners interpret only the position of the filled bubbles, entirely ignoring the text next to the bubbles. In other words, these ballots also contain both a human-readable record, the text next to the filled bubbles, and a machine-readable record, the positions of the filled bubbles. A hacked BMD that prints bubble ballots might therefore switch the position of the text as well as the position of the filled bubble. This text swap attack, while perhaps easier to detect, is essentially the same as the inconsistent barcode attack, an attack on the BMD that exploits how the scanner will interpret the ballot. Even HMPBs, or hand-marked printed ballots, are vulnerable to this kind of attack. Whether ballots are printed ahead of time or printed on demand for each individual voter, it is possible that a voter could be handed a ballot that swaps the position of candidate names, which few or no voters would notice. So what are the solutions? The most important way to mitigate this attack and many other assaults on elections is to ensure that voters verify their ballots and that the human-readable portions are routinely inspected by risk-limiting audits, or RLAs. If every BMD-using voter inspects the human-readable portion of their ballot before casting the ballot, then the physical record will reflect each voter's intent regardless of whether the BMDs were hacked. And then a risk-limiting audit, by randomly sampling ballots, inspecting and tallying only the human-readable portion, can efficiently determine whether the outcome is correct. Of course, ensuring voter verification is no simple task. It seems that, unless instructed to, voters are unlikely to verify their ballots. But there may be interventions, in terms of voter instruction and design of the overall voting experience, that improve verification rates. Nor is it a guarantee that all races will be subject to an RLA. While RLAs are increasing in popularity, most states do not conduct them. And RLAs cannot simply be implemented overnight. Because RLAs depend on sampling ballots at random across state or district, the manner in which the ballots are stored, organized, and numbered is important. Election officials may have to do several pilot tests in order to establish procedures that work best for them. Although it is essential to strive for high rates of voter ver verification and frequent risk-limiting audits, we cannot count on them for every election. We therefore propose a supplemental way to mitigate the inconsistent barcode or text swap attack. As long as ballots are encoded in both voter-verifiable form, i.e. printed text, and in machine-readable form, i.e. in a barcode or in the position of the filled bubbles, there is a potential risk that the machine-readable form could be altered, affecting the electronic tabulation. However, the risk can be eliminated if the only record of the vote is the printed text, and if tabulators interpret that record in the same way as voters. In such a system, optical scanners would have to read and interpret the printed text, i.e. the names on a summary ballot or the names next to filled bubbles on a bubble ballot, using Optical Character Recognition, or OCR, technology. To our knowledge, there is only one voting system in the U.S. that uses OCR to scan ballots, the Hart InterCivic Verity Duo system, which is deployed primarily in Kentucky and Texas. Other vendors should consider offering systems that only print and scan voter choices in human and machine-readable text. Some have suggested that OCR cannot match the speed and accuracy of barcode scanning, but OCR should be readily available in the polling place and at counting sites with modern hardware and software. 
The U.S. Postal Service, for instance, has since 1965 used OCR to sort mail, and reading printed ballots along with filled bubble location, while not trivial, should be an easier task than reading handwritten addresses. With the exception of write-in candidates, the text is computer printed and the possible text strings can be known in advance by the scanner. Implementing OCR on voting machines is merely a supplemental improvement, not an alternative to increased voter verification and RLAs. Voter verification is still essential because a hacked BMD could still produce an incorrect ballot in a way that is visible to the voter, e.g. in the example above, of course, that's a picture you can't see, filled into the bubble next to Elmo when the voter selected Big Bird. And I'll explain that in just a minute. The RLAs are still essential because they protect against hacked or defective scanners and tabulators. OCR does not but we think that this is a promising area for further research and product development. In addition to eliminating attacks on ballot barcodes, it may boost voter trust to remove non-voter verifiable information from the ballot. I thought this was really interesting because very often when you hear about fixing elections and making them more secure, the response by me and many others is paper ballots. We've got to have a paper trail. And that is true. And then we need risk limiting audits. That is also true. But the reason we need those risk-limiting audits is because even the paper ballots themselves aren't always trustworthy. And this article outlines why that's the case. And I just thought that was fascinating. So what, the, what some of these pictures are, and again, there's links in the show notes if you want to see the pictures, but picture a ballot that is a bubble ballot. So you, know, you, you fill in the circle next to the name you want. So the computer is reading the bubbles, not the names. You, as a human, are reading the names, not the bubbles. So let's say I'm a bad guy and I want Elmo to win. And there's two choices, Big Bird and Elmo. And so on my ballot, I put Elmo on the top bubble and Big Bird at the bottom bubble. But the scanner, but the scanner is programmed to think that the top bubble is for Big Bird and the bottom bubble is for Elmo. So even though you filled it in properly and you looked at it real hard before you put it in the machine, even though you voted for Big Bird, it's going to count the vote for Elmo. Now, again, that's why you have risk-limiting audits. But anyway, I just thought this was an interesting article, and we've talked about this before, and with the elections uh, kind of going on now, the primaries and with the, the midterms coming up in the fall, I thought it was good to kind of revisit this topic. All right, a couple more articles, and this one, one more here that's a little, little bit longish, and this is from the, uh, the Mercury News. For $29.99 a month, a website called PimEyes, and that's spelled P-I-M-E-Y-E-S, PimEyes, offers a potentially dangerous superpower from the world of science fiction, the ability to search for a face, finding obscure photos that would otherwise have been as safe as the proverbial needle in the vast digital haystack of the internet. A search takes mere seconds. You upload a photo of a face, check a box agreeing to the terms of service, and then get a grid of photos of faces deemed similar with links to where they appear on the internet. The New York Times used PimEyes on the faces of a dozen Times journalists, with their consent, to test its powers. PimEyes found photos of every person, some that the journalists had never seen before, even when they were wearing sunglasses or a mask, or their face was turned away from the camera, in the image used to conduct the search. PimEyes found one reporter dancing at an art museum event a decade ago and crying after being proposed to a photo that she didn't particularly like, but that the photographer had decided to use to advertise his business on Yelp. A tech reporter's younger self was spotted in an awkward crush of fans at the Coachella Music Festival in 2011. A foreign correspondent appeared in countless wedding photos, evidently the life of every party, and in the blurry background of a photo taken of someone else at a Greek airport in 2019. A journalist's past life in a rock band was unearthed, as was another's preferred summer camp getaway. 
Unlike Clearview AI, a similar facial recognition tool available only to law enforcement, supposedly, that's my editorial, Pim Eyes does not include results from social media sites. The sometimes surprising images that Pim Eyes surfaced came instead from news articles, wedding photography pages, review sites, blogs, and pornography sites. Most of the matches for the dozen journalist faces were correct. For the women, the incorrect photos often came from pornography sites, which was unsettling in the suggestion that it could be them. And to be clear, it was not them. A tech executive who asked not to be identified said he used PimEyes fairly regularly, primarily to identify people who harass him on Twitter and use their real photos on their accounts, but not their real names. Another PimEyes user who asked to stay anonymous said he used the tool to find the real identities of actresses from pornographic films and to search for explicit photos on his Facebook friends. The new owner of PimEyes is Georgi Gobranzitz, and I, I'm sure I got that wrong, a 34-year-old academic who says his interest in advanced technology was sparked by Russian cyber attacks on his home country, Georgia. Gobrandet said he believed that PimEyes could be a tool for good, helping people keep tabs on their online reputation. The journalist who disliked the photo that a photographer was using, for example, could now ask him to take it off his Yelp page. PimEyes users are supposed to search only for their own faces or for the faces of people who have consented, he said. But he was relying on people to act, quote-unquote, ethically, offering little protection against the technology's erosion of, long-held, of the long-held ability to stay anonymous in a crowd. PimEyes has no controls in place to prevent users from searching for a face that is not their own and suggests a user pay a hefty fee to keep damaging photos from an ill-considered knight from following him or her forever. And I skipped a bunch of the article to get to this one anecdotal story that'll bring this home. In 2005, when Scarlett was 19 and broke, she considered working in pornography. She traveled to New York City for an audition that was so humiliating and abusive that she abandoned the idea. Pim Eyes unearthed the decades-old trauma with links to where exactly the explicit photos could be found on the web. They were sprinkled in among more recent portraits of Scarlett, who works on labor rights and has been the subject of media coverage for a high-profile worker revolt she led at Apple. This is a quote from her. She says, quote, I had no idea up until that point that those images were on the internet, unquote. Worried about how people would react to the images, Scarlett immediately began looking into how to get them removed, an experience she described in a Medium post and to CNN. When she clicked on one of the explicit photos on PimEyes, a menu popped up offering a link to the image, a link to the website where it appeared, and an option to, quote, exclude from public results, unquote, on PimEyes. But exclusion, Scarlett quickly discovered, was available only to subscribers who paid for Protect plans, which cost from $90 to $300 a month. Quote, it's essentially extortion, unquote, said Scarlett, who eventually signed up for the most expensive plan. Gobranitz disagreed with that characterization. He pointed to a free tool for deleting results from the PimEyes index that is not prominently advertised on the site. He also provided a receipt showing that PimEyes had refunded Scarlett for the $300 plan last month. PimEyes has tens of thousands of subscribers, Gobranitz said, with most visitors to the site coming from the United States and Europe. It makes the bulk of its money from subscribers to its Protect service, which includes help from PimEyes support staff in getting photos taken down from external sites. PimEyes has a free opt-out as well for people to have data about themselves removed from the site, including the search images of their faces. To opt out, Scarlett provided a photo of her teenage self and a scan of her government-issued identification. At the beginning of April, she received a confirmation that her opt-out request had been accepted. 
And this is a quote from that email. It says, quote, your potential results containing your face are removed from our system, unquote. But when the Times ran a PIMI's search of Scarlett's face with her permission a month later, there were more than 100 results, including the explicit ones. I'm not sure what I can add to that. <laughs> I, think, I think it's pretty clear that this is a problem. And the reason this is a problem is because we have no laws against it. Period. End of story. There is way, way too much money to be made on services like this and way, way too much data freely available out there on which to base such a business. This is going to happen unless we block it. Now, will there always be underground versions of this and illegal versions? Yeah, sure. But we've got to at least try, right? And then we've also got to stop the, the data collection and sharing. And we've got to make sure that when people do collect this stuff, that they keep it secure. Now, in this case, supposedly it was all publicly available images, and that's just people oversharing, honestly. But this goes back again to why privacy isn't just about yourself. It's about other people, too. I mean, a lot of these photos probably came from other people who had taken photos that you just happened to be in, not ones you took yourself and posted yourself. So it was out of your hands. Now, I thought about paying the 30 bucks just to search for my own face, but I didn't honestly want to give these guys any money. All right. Anyway, one more story, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. And this particular story is about Tim Hortons and an app that uh, they had people install on their smartphones. But keep in mind that this is really every single company that has tried to get you to install their app. Let's, let's face it. Okay, so this is from a Canadian uh, CTV News. The Tim Hortons mobile ordering app violated the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from customers. An investigation by federal and provincial privacy watchdogs has found. In a report released Wednesday, and again, I think that's last Wednesday, privacy commissioners say people who downloaded the Tim Hortons app had their movements tracked and recorded every few minutes, even when the app was not open on their phones. The investigation came after the National Post reporter James McLeod obtained data showing the Tim Hortons app on his phone had tracked his location more than 2,700 times in less than five months. The commissioners found that the Tim Hortons app asked for permission to access a mobile device's geolocation functions, but misled many users to believe information would be accessed only when the app was in use. However, the app tracked users as long as the device was on, continually gathering their location data. The commissioners say Tim Hortons collected quote-unquote vast amounts of granular location data with the aim of delivering targeted advertising to better promote its coffee and associated products, but that it never actually used the data for this purpose. The app used location data to infer where users lived, where they worked, and whether they were traveling, the watchdogs found. It generated an event every time users entered or left a Tim Hortons competitor, a major sports venue, or their home or workplace, the commissioners said in a joint, re in a joint news release. And this is a quote from the statement. Uh, it says, quote, The investigation uncovered that Tim Hortons continued to collect location data for a year after shelving plans to use it for targeted advertising, even though it had no legitimate need to do so. The company says it only used aggregated location data in a limited way to analyze user trends, for example, whether users switched to other coffee chains or how users' movements changed as the pandemic took hold, unquote. While Tim Hortons stopped continually tracking users' locations in 2020 after the probe was launched, this did not eliminate the risk of surveillance, the watchdogs say. The investigation found that Tim Hortons' contract with a U.S. third-party location services supplier contained language so, quote-unquote, vague and permissive that it would have allowed the company to sell, quote-unquote, de-identified location data for its own purposes. There is a real risk that such geolocation data could be re-identified, the watchdogs warned. 
And a quote from one of the uh, people on the committee said, quote, geolocation data is incredibly sensitive because it paints such a detailed picture and a revealing picture of our lives, unquote. Surveillance of our everyday movements reveals where people live and work, as well as information about visits to a medical clinic or a place of worship, he added. And then another quote, uh, he says, quote, it can be used to make deductions about sexual preferences, social political affiliations, and much more, unquote. Tim Hortons agreed to implement recommendations that the company, one, delete any remaining location data and direct third-party service providers to do the same, two, establish and maintain a privacy management program for apps, and three, report on measures that is taken to comply with the recommendations. All right, folks, so the next time you're at a restaurant or a store and they try to get you to install their app so that you get bonuses or discounts or, you know, whatever, or enhanced shopping experiences, whatever they call it. Understand that the real reason they want to do that is they want to get tons of information about you. Now, you should be, you know, not letting them have permission to get at things like your location, because it should be asking you now. I mean, the way our phones are set up now, they're supposed to ask you when, a, when an app wants your location data, you're supposed to give you that option to say yes or no. And now, these places are going to say, well, we need that information because if it's a Target app, then I want to know when you're in Target, right? So that when you walk in the door, then I can say, oh, go down to aisle five. There's a special on that thing you just bought last week. But like this article says, they also want to know that, you know, the Target app probably knows when you go to Walmart because it wants to know when you're, when you're cheating on them. And then frankly, a lot of these apps, even unknown to the app developers, use third-party plugins and software development kits that have embedded in them a lot of the same data collection stuff and maybe going to third parties that even they are not aware of. So just, just don't. Um, I've run across a lot of times recently when some place that I've been says, oh no, you have to install our app if you want to have a reservation here or you have to install our app if you want to get your tickets, but you don't. There are almost always ways around that. All right, so let's real quick get to my tip of the week. Uh, and this is based on a blog article I just uh, I just published. Uh, again, if you're a newsletter subscriber, it's already in your mailbox. Uh, otherwise, you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and it's probably the top article there. But I found it really interesting. And we talk about passwords, obviously, a lot on the show because it's a big security thing. Passwords, love them or hate them, and most people hate them, is kind of what we're stuck with right now. Now, we are moving on to what we call passwordless technologies. Apple just announced support for that. Uh, and some others as well, Microsoft and others are pushing it really hard. And it, it, it's promising. It's got a ways to go. But today, honestly, passwords are still what we're dealing with in most cases. And that means that you need to be using a password manager because you shouldn't know any of your passwords. If they're if you know them, then they've got some sort of pattern. If they've got a pattern, then they're guessable, especially if it's something that you would remember. It's probably based on something about you. And with all the stuff we posted on social media, being able to guess that you're you know a big Indianapolis Colts fan. And so, you know, your password might be go Colts or something like that, right? Or Peyton Manning rules or, <laughs> or whatever. We're just bad at picking passwords because we need to find something we can somehow remember. And if we can remember it, then it's probably something that can also be guessed. So we should be using password managers, but a lot of people, rightly so, are paranoid about using a password manager. I mean, think about it. You're basically putting all your digital eggs in one basket all your passwords, all your secrets. I mean, you could put, you know, credit card information and bank account information. You could put any secret you want into a password manager for safekeeping. And they have one job. Their job is to keep that stuff secure and they do a good job. I generally trust them, but that data is your vault, that secure vault, that hopefully massively encrypted vault protected by a really strong password. The one password that you do need to come up with and remember 
uh, whenever it goes to the cloud and back is so encrypted that even if some bad guy were to somehow get a hold of it, that it would be useless to them. But maybe you don't trust that. And I completely respect that opinion. So there are some interesting other ways around that. And I'm going to talk about just one of them here. The article talks about a couple others that I eventually say I don't really recommend. But if you want those, check them out. But this one is called peppering your passwords or the article I found about this that made me think about it was called double blind passwords. And so what it means is instead of storing the entire password in your password manager, you only store the base of the password. Now that's going to be most of it. Let's say you're going to come up with a 20 character password. It might be the first 16 characters of that password, but the key is to hold back those last four characters and make that something that you could remember. And to do it right, it should be different for every password. So let me give you a for instance, and that will maybe bring this home. So I go to google.com and I want to sign into google.com and I sign in with my username and then I type in the first 16 digits of my crazy password that my password manager generated helpfully for me. And by the way, that is what I store in the password manager, those first 16 crazy random characters that are completely impossible to guess. But then on top of that, after I have the password manager enter those 16 characters automatically, like they do, I add to it. I add in, let's say it's Google and I add in after the 16, I add G O O G as four more characters. Now it's 20 characters long. It's something crazy that I don't know. Plus G O O G. That is my actual password. And I hit login and it works because that's my actual password. That is called peppering your passwords. And it's double blind in the sense that your password manager doesn't even know your real password. It knows 16 out of 20 characters of your real password, but it doesn't have everything. So that if for some reason that password vault was compromised and the bad guys were able to decrypt your password vault, even then they would not have your actual passwords. They would only have, let's say the first 16 characters of all your passwords. And then they would have to figure out what those, well, first they don't know how many more characters there are, right? Uh, they would just go trying them and like all of a sudden like, well, this is this guy's password vault. Why are these passwords not working? They'd have to figure out that you have only submitted part of your passwords. They'd have to know which part you submitted. I mean, you could, you could put a prefix on it instead of a suffix. So that's kind of harder to do. They'd have to kind of know how many other characters you added. And that could be variable. It's still really hard for them to figure that out. So if you don't trust the password vault, system, the cloud syncing version of these password mentor password vaults, you can come up with some clever workarounds, this being one of them. And it's called peppering, by the way, it's, it's, <laughs> there are cryptographic terms called salt and pepper. And honestly, until I read this article, pepper was not one that I was honestly familiar with, but they're very similar. And what it really is, is it's kind of throwing on a little flavor. It's, you know, you take something that is maybe predictable or maybe guessable or, or maybe vulnerable somehow, you don't know how, and you, you don't, you're not worried about how, because you're just trying to take that extra measure. You're trying to add on a layer of security and you, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to put a little flavor on that. I'm just going to add a little bit of salt or I'm going to add a little bit of pepper. And it's a little bit of extra that you tack on that just makes it that much harder to crack. And so if you like the idea of using a password manager, but don't like the idea of some cloud synced thing where all of your juicy passwords are stored somewhere up in the cloud where some bad guy may somehow be able to crack open and get into, then this is something you could do. Now, 
another compromise here, by the way, is I've got hundreds, literally hundreds of passwords. And I, even if I wanted to do this, I wouldn't do it for all of them, but I might do it for like my bank or my government website logins or medical stuff or social media or email. Those are important too. You know, so maybe I would only do it for a few and I would come up with some technique that is easy for easy for me to remember. And it doesn't have to be as straightforward as what I did. Like if, you know, the first four letters of the domain name, it could be the first four letters of the domain name in reverse order. It could be the first four letters uh, with camel case or mixed case, you know, up, down, up, down, as far as capital and not capital. You could put a dash between all the letters, whatever you want. You could come up with some technique that only you would know, but it would be very easy for you to remember. The only other downside to this technique is that every time you do this, your password manager is going to say, oh, hey, I see you put a new password in there. Would you like me to save that instead? Because it recognized that what you actually submitted to the password form was not what it has for your password. And so it helpfully says, oh, it looks like there's something new here and it worked. Would you like me to save that instead? And you have to say no, right? Because that, def- that will defeat the whole purpose. So you're going to, you know, there is that annoyance that every time you submit, your password manager is going to pop up, a th- you know, a thing. So anyway, that is, I thought was interesting and kind of clever. So uh, anyway, there it is, your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up. Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't checked out that uh, video interview I did with uh, Henry Techlor, check that out. Check out the show notes for a link to that. That was a lot of fun. Also, again, only five days left to get your Dragon Challenge coin. There were only 100 of these things minted, and I've given away over half of them already. So the, the pickings are already getting slim. And if you missed it last time around, the last time I did a coin promotion, I think was last gosh, October or November. So it's been a while. Uh, I don't do them super often. So this is your opportunity. You only got five days left. Go to uh, patreon.com and search for firewalls. Don't stop dragons. You'll see the the offer there. Or if you go to my website and search on uh, challenge coin, you'll find all the information there as well. That might be honestly the better way to go. It's got more info there and pictures and videos and the whole bit. And one last thing, uh, one more possible incentive these will work like regular challenge coins like they do in the military. So if you meet me in person and you produce that coin, that's worth a free drink on me. And you know, Hey, I'm going to DEF CON. So if I see you there and you got a coin, whip that sucker out and uh, you know, I'll buy you a drink. All right. Next week, we got an interview with Derek Hansen from YubiKey. We'll be talking about passwordless technologies and authentication challenges just in general. It's a lot of fun talking. I've got a great bunch of other interviews in the pipeline, folks, as always. So uh, subscribe if you haven't. That way you won't miss a thing. If you like getting these uh, tips of the week and you want them actually, you know, in print with lots of nice handy links and pictures, possibly, you know, subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, check out the book. If it's not for yourself, it makes a great gift. So, all right, everybody, take care. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge stuff.